The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show program for July 2nd, 2023. I'm your host today, David Livingston, and we have open lines today. So open lines means we want you to call us and tell us what's on your mind. Uh, Anything space-related, technology, science, engineering, space policy-related fields, we'd like to hear from you. Our toll-free number is 1-866-687-7223. That's the easiest way to reach us. But you can do email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Open Lines works best with phone calls, and uh, you're not limited to a certain number of minutes. Uh, as long as you're interesting and the audience is interested in what you're saying, you can keep going. And as I said, this uh, is really a, a program for you, for open lines. You get to tell us what's on your mind, what you think about current issues, and things like that. We haven't done an open lines program in a while, so I'm, I'm looking forward for this one being a great success. This is the last open lines we will be doing in July, even though the month has just started. And as of yet, we don't have one planned for August and beyond. So um, pick up that phone. Let us know what you're thinking about on space or any kind of space-related engineering, science, tech, policy type of issue. Again, the toll-free number, one 866 Six eight seven seven two two three, and then email for those of you wanting to do that. It is Doctor Space D R S P A C E at thespaceshow.com. So I'll give you a couple of topic suggestions, uh, which you don't have to follow, but you may want to. Uh, India joining Artemis is a really big deal uh, to many of us, myself included. Somebody may want to talk about that. Uh, I read in the news today that our administration uh, is even more eager to control climate change, so they are looking at ways, and there's actually a paper written on this subject about how to control the amount of sunlight to Earth from creating clouds, from interfering with cloud formation, uh, from doing all sorts of things with the idea that if they can lower the amount of sun's radiation hitting the earth, we can reduce global warming, assuming global warming is really a problem and climate change is an imperative. 
But this paper and the news articles that I've read on it, which I have long learned are not always trustworthy, seems to think it's an important uh, topic for the administration. So someone may know a lot more about it than I know from reading newspaper articles, and you may want to talk about that. ESA launched the, uh, the Dark Universe Space Telescope, which is hoping to detect or describe or photograph or do something with dark matter and dark energy. It was launched on a Falcon 9. Somebody may want to talk about that as well. So we're, um, you know, we're all open for that. And um, let's see, the helicopter on Mars, Ingenuity, finally phoned home after 63 days. That's a good story. Maybe somebody will want to talk about that. And Russia is preparing to launch Luna 25, which is um, their first return to the moon in decades. Uh, it's a lunar lander to the northern uh, latitudes of the moon looking for water. Uh, I understand from Hotel Mars programs that I've done that if they find water in any substantial qualities, quantities up there, this is a really, really big deal. So somebody may want to talk about Luna 25 going back to the, to the moon. Um, we do have a caller on hold, so those are some ideas that uh, I've thrown out. There's also some really good moon viewing for the month of July. I think four full moons in a row. Uh, Space.com plus Sky and Telescope and other sources have great information on it and how to see all of this depending on where you live. Someone wants to talk about astronomical uh, delights for the month of July, give us a call. one 866 6877223. Let's see who our early first caller is. Good afternoon, caller. Thank you for your call. Who are you? Where are you, please? Yes, this is um, Jacob Grimes. I have uh, calling from Florida. I last time I reached out to the show uh, was right around the time of Artemis One. It was shortly after that, and um, that's what we discussed. Okay. Uh, so, what's on your mind for today? Um, just uh, going back a little bit further, since this is the first time I've called in, um, I don't know if it would be fair to go back and discuss tracking shots I've assisted um, um, may, um, taking of the Falcon, um, Falcon Heavy launch USF-67 and our attempt to track Starship, um, Starship's launch from here in Florida. So those are definitely two interesting events that um, well, were a lot of were quite interesting to have captured and assisted in, especially given the fact of how amazing the quality on that um, Falcon Heavy launch footage was. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I probably haven't seen it, but how are you tracking Starship in Florida since it was launched in Texas? That's, I, have to, I have to put the um, note on it that it was an attempt. We did not successfully able to get it because it never crossed the horizon. However, we were set up and we were... Um, waiting for it to uh, cross the horizon if it had been successful enough. Um, we had already planned and be a practice, and uh, he, um, the person I was working with, um, he, Scott Ferguson, I believe, he uh, has an amazing telescope that he's been using for many years now and has some incredible footage. So it's an absolute shame we didn't manage to see it because it would have been, um, he's tracked even Artemis 1 out to the moon and back. 
So either. So when you say track Artemis one to and from, you're tracking this with pictures. Is 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 that what you're talking about, or uh, how yeah. are you tracking it? Tell us how you're tracking it. Um, he would be able to best explain it further. I don't know if you can conference call it so I can invite him in. He was interested in joining. Maybe I'll just show up later. Anyway, um, I know he was working with a telescope in Chile to basically, how do I say, kind of triangulate its altitude and distance. And using that, he was able to locate it, track it, and measure its distance, as well as, you know, like you said, take photos of it and identify its location as it traveled to and back from the moon. So are these, is this official tracking, or is this something you guys want to do for the hell of it, or is it a commercial project, or what? Honestly, it's just, you know, just amateur astronomy. He just does it because it's a hell of a thing to do, and I've been working with him for a little over six months now, and honestly, um, there is no real, I mean, he does have a YouTube channel, but that's, that's again, that's all hobby stuff at this point. So when when these launches go off, assuming that they're successful, we usually watch them up to s- stage separation, right? You you've got good video yeah. to something like that. So you're claiming that with telescopes, you're you're able to give photographs and video going further than uh, than where we're usually cut off from. Is that correct? Um, as much as you know, until it crosses the horizon, and typically he can get up to maybe you know. I want to say maybe seven, eight minutes. He tries to go as long as he can, but um, I know with Artemis 1, he tracked it beyond um, SRB separation. He was still tracking it. And, you know, even when Artemis 1 left, you know, the SOS left his view, he was still set up, and he waited. I think it was about an hour, and he captured when the ICPS and Orion came back over and reorbited over Florida. Uh so are there ways for people to tune into? Are you live streaming your tracking? I guess that's what I want to say. That, um, he doesn't always, but sometimes he does, and he does have a YouTube channel if people were interested in um, catching live streams like that. Um, his channel is called Astronomy Live, and it's honestly, again, if you look up his talking heavy footage and some of his ISS captures, they're incredible. In fact, I... Uh, Compare, I've um, been developing footage comparing the official SpaceX broadcast to what he captured, and it's arguably better than what SpaceX um, showed on that live stream. Amazing. Did he, Did he, for example, get the Euclid launch from ESA yesterday on the Falcon 9? I don't believe so. I think he was busy that day. I, don't, um, I understand that he has his own job, so I don't pester him every day about um, what he's doing, but... He tries to make as many launches as he can, since he's not based in Space Coast. He's in another part of the state, but he does try to show up whenever he can. You, you got a interesting and fun email from a, another listener. So uh, this is an email from Paul, and Paul's in Tucson, Arizona. And he says, ask your caller if they can track the UAP objects that the military and the Navy keep seeing. So um, I, I doubt that you're set up to do anything like that, but you want to reply to Paul? Um, honestly, I know the software that Astronomy Live uses. Um, typically, it's, um, it's all pre-planned, basically. The tracking isn't actually like, how do I phrase it? It doesn't actually track the object. It tracks its path. So 
Um, obviously, if there's something detected, we can, he can take free control, but it's not really that accurate to put it um, precisely. Because, again, it's, it's, um, I believe it's called Rock, Rocket Trackers, the program he developed. And as it's, as its name implies, it's designed for tracking rockets. So something erratic like, you know, a um, UAP in the sky really would be kind of beyond it. He would have to just completely manually control the telescope. If so, he, but, I mean, I guess you could. Um, um, if, if he knew that there was a Russian or Chinese uh, mission going up, could he track that? Um, yeah, as long as he understands the overall parameters, a lot of the stuff, um, he gets, um, oh, what's that website called? Um, there, well, there's a website that basically gives a lot of orbital information, you know, especially launch angles and such, and he uses that to plug into his program to get those predictions and those estimates of the launch angle, where it's going to go, with elevation above the horizon, stuff like that, and... If he has that information, he knows that information, he can plug that in, and yes, he can predict in advance where something should be. He's even tracked geostationary satellites. Granted, most high-altitude objects like that are just, you know, bright spots in the night sky, even with the right. telescope, but you can tell it's something there. It's not just another star, because it'll, it won't move while the stars do, because it's in geostationary orbit. Well, he'd be an interesting guy to talk to on the space show. You know, if he calls in today, fine. But if if not, you or he should contact me with his contact information, and I'll reach back out to him. I think it's pretty interesting that, that he's able to do something like that. Well, I'll definitely let him know. Um, he just replied. Um, he <laughs> he replied to a tweet where somebody reminded me the show was happening. So I'll definitely reach out to him so he knows that you have interest in now, again, this is all just the stuff I've been helping him do. He's been doing this for years. In fact, uh -huh. uh, one, one video he recently made was, I believe he was comparing the location of Polaris um, taken this year as opposed to 10 years ago. And using that video, he was able to show Earth's orbital precession around its axis, which is really incredible given how slowly the stars change in the night sky. So you guys are, are just amateur astronomers, is that correct? Yes. Do you, do you have, like, academic training in the field, or you just got an interest in it and, and self-taught? Um, I believe he does. Um, I'm just more into it loosely, and I'm also learning through him. You know, again, I'm only into this for about a year, so everything I'm doing, I'm trying to pick up and learn from him. He's <laughs> got some experience in Honestly, he's just an absolute Pandora's box of experiences and things he's done. So it's just constantly, every time I talk to him, just like, wow, you've done that? Or, you know, this is something you've done. That. So it's really an honor and such a fantastic opportunity to work with him, be able to do these things. Even if I'm just, um, often I'm just running the focuser and just keeping things in focus while he's running the program. But I'm still learning by, how do I say it, you know, absorbing the knowledge of um, what he's doing and how he's doing it. Well, listen, um, uh, Jacob, I really appreciate your call, and it'd be great to, uh, to feature his, his work and, and his team and what he works with on the space show. So have him reach out to me, okay? I absolutely will. I'll talk to him now. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate hearing from you. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Uh, that was interesting. I was not aware of that, and uh, I think that... 
would be interesting to see how that's being done at an amateur level. Uh, so I, I hope I do hear from him. Uh, listeners, you can call 866-687-7223. You can also send in an email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And I threw out some topics for you. Uh, you can, you know, go for those topics or go for your own. And here's a, a listener going for her own topic. So this is Meredith in Chicago. So Meredith says, David, uh, I'm sure you know about the big Zuckerberg-Musk proposed fight coming up. Um, do you really believe this is real? Do you really think that the two of them are going to fight for charity or for some other reason? Uh, Musk said the other day he wanted to do it in the Roman Colosseum. I don't know if they're joking around, if this is just a PR scam, or if people are really planning to do this. Uh, I don't even know if Las Vegas odds makers are taking bets on it yet. Do you have any thoughts on it? And um, so, Meredith, Meredith, I am aware of it. I'm not paying very much attention to it because I don't think it's real. I can't imagine these guys getting into some kind of a ring or the Roman Colosseum or something and duking it out or doing some kind of fast-learned jiu-jitsu or martial arts uh, to take one or the other down. I just don't see it happening. Uh, but I know uh, at least Musk, who I hear more about it from than I do Zuckerberg, seems to be having fun with it. And the press is having a ball with it. I know some cable shows have devoted 30- and 40-minute discussions to it, putting up their, the size and reach and the specs of each person as if we're looking at a heavyweight boxing match coming up or a, uh, some k-kind of a uh, multi you know media match uh, fight going on, but I don't think it's for real, and I'd be really surprised if it's for real. Uh, I do think if it was for real, it probably would be a huge pay for review purse going to probably a charity or a cause, but I don't think I would pay for it. So, Meredith, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if anybody else knows anything more about Musk and uh, Zuckerberg getting it on with each other in the ring, I make that part of the program today. I, I guess it's okay. Musk is space-related. We have another caller on hold. Good, morning. Good afternoon, caller. Who are you and where are you, please? Uh, this is Marshall in my usual little old hobble. Um and uh, today I'd like uh, to talk about uh, the Starship 2.0, the 18-meter, 60-foot uh, uh, Starship that uh, was proposed last year. And um, I keep playing with my spreadsheet and the numbers and so on, and I think it's probable that with the Raptor 2.0 engine, Elon might be able to pull that off. And, oh my gosh, uh, that will be almost another paradigm shift produced by Elon Musk for space adventuring, uh, which gets back to your uh, Ph.D. thesis. Which is what? Basically, your Ph.D. thesis on uh, space tourism um, 
does uh, Starship 1.0 uh, meet your criteria, or does it need to have uh, Starship 2.0? Okay, so first of all, I, I, my, the space tourism was a big part of my dissertation. It was really titled Expanding Commercial Space. So it wasn't just space tourism. We had comms in there and communications and, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff in there. But at the time I was writing this, the companies wanting to do um, space tourism were all, to a T, talking about single stage to orbit. And there was none of this suborbital crap, okay? And, um, you know, e even the entrepreneurial guys were SSTO to orbit. And when uh, I would go and talk to or lecture to the Stanford class of my professor, Bruce Lucinian, his engineering class was designing, uh, and I had, I hope I still have them there. I think they're in boxes uh, stored in the garage, but they were paper-bound manuals, you know, vellobinded. They weren't published books. But he had two big volumes of how to create an SSTO and a half to orbit. So that was single stage and a half to orbit because Bruce did not believe you could do single stage to orbit. And, and by the way, the only other entity that I interviewed in my dissertation uh, that panned these space tourism efforts back then for SSTO was an engineer from Boeing. And I can't remember his name. And I haven't gone back to read the sections of my dissertation to try to find it. Maybe I could, I do have online versions of my dissertation, so maybe I could pull up a, a, a universal search for all 500 pages. I wanted to get back in touch with him and put him on the show. But he was the only guy who said, you know, you need to think twice about SSTO to orbit. It's not going to work. And he outlined for me in a great interview that I referenced in my dissertation as to why SSTO was, was a fabrication and would not work. Something tells me the gentleman's name was Pedro Reyes, R-E-Y-E-S, but I have no idea if that's correct. I mean, my memory, that's taken me back to like 1998, 1997, and he was the only naysayer, other than Bruce, who was not really a naysayer because he was doing SSTO and a half. But that's completely different than what you're talking about with Starship 1 or Starship 2.0 because um, back then the, the economics of a single stage to orbit and the kind of vehicles that were being used and the technology that could make them reusable. I mean, some were going to land horizontally on a runway, but they didn't have the landing gear as Pedro. I'm going to use his name Pedro, but it might have been somebody else. Uh, pointed out that they were not robust enough, and the technology back then was not robust robust enough to create uh, a reusable vehicle. Others believed in capsule formation, and they'd come back as capsules. Um, all of those companies went belly up, and uh, they went belly up shortly after my dissertation got published over the next couple of years. But the, it's interesting, they all came back, or most all of them, came back with a fallback plan. And the fallback plan was, okay, we can't do SSTO to orbit. We'll do suborbital. After all, how hard could that be? Because suborbital's already been done, right, by the government. 
Well, here we are in 2023. Virgin claims they are now flying commercial. Blue flies suborbital, but they're not commercial because you can't go buy a ticket and you can't make a reservation on it. So that outlines commerciality, but at least he's flying. Some of the British entries back then to SSTO don't even exist. And so um, a lot of progress there over, what, 25 years, coming up on 30 years. Uh, so I don't think that my dissertation is a comparable uh, entity to what Musk has been able to accomplish with reusability, which was only sort of a wet dream back then, and, and a very critical one because most people, a lot of people in the know, supposedly I'm putting quotes in the know, didn't believe in reusability, said it was impossible. Uh, plus, Musk not only created reusability, but he revolutionized cost, and he turned rocket launches into an assembly line project. So that was not even in the wildest imagination when I was working on my dissertation, and Elon Musk was not even an entity on the playing ground back then. I mean, I this is a, a whole chapter in my spatial book, if I ever get it done, but I, I met Musk... Years later, uh, I was doing the space show, and um, I think I had one or two years behind me of doing the show, but I met him walking around the exhibit hall of a space advocate space conference. I think it was maybe Space Frontier Foundation. And someone introduced me to him and said, this guy had PayPal. Well, I didn't know what the hell PayPal was back then. And and, uh, he, he wants to send a greenhouse to Mars on a private rocket. So I met and talked with Musk and became very friendly with him, and he did three or four plus shows for the space show, which I've talked about a lot before. Then I guess he got too busy and too big, and I've done shows with Gwen, and uh, I would love to uh, have Gwen or Musk or both of them back on the show. Uh, I know how to reach Gwen, I, I, I'd have to do a little bit of work to, to get back directly to Elon, but the space show may not have the size of audience that he would, he would be willing to do given where I see him doing things. But given that Musk and, and SpaceX were not even on the drawing board back then and not even in anyone's consciousness and not even anything Musk accomplished, would have been credible back then. That would have been the biggest space advocacy fanboy nonsense forever back in the late 90s. Um, I, I just, I don't see the the comparison to anything that I wrote about. That world that I wrote about doesn't exist. And for a couple of times, I wanted to do a book where I wanted to take everything I wrote in the dissertation they got approved by great advisors, including people at Boeing and elsewhere. And on the left side of the page, here is what got approved, and here is what I wrote. And on the right side of the page, here is reality within 10 years of that. And, and just show how the best minds of the day, and believe me, they were the best minds of the day. I'm, I'm not exaggerating about that, because my dissertation was unique and a groundbreaker, and it, it almost didn't get approved because they thought commercial space was a was a farce. And uh, if it hadn't been for Harvey Willenberg over 
at uh, Boeing and Bruce at Stanford, I would have never gotten my dissertation approved because commercial space was a joke, you know, back in, in that period around 1997, 1996, something like that. And um, I'd love to show how the, the greatest experts of that period of mine missed it, not by a little, but by multiple, multiple football fields. Uh, but I've, I've never gotten around to doing it, but I think that would be a, a really, really fun exercise to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking that uh, somewhere in your thesis, uh, your dissertation, you would have uh, put a stake in the ground and stated how many people per year had to go to space to uh, meet the requirements we, we of had, um, space tourism and commercial space. Marshall, we had economics for that, and the best economics of the day uh, came from Patrick, you know, my economist friend over who just retired from teaching economics in, uh, in Japan, and he was just on the show earlier this year, but he did the only credible space tourism market and economic breakdowns of the time. Patrick Collins, Dr. Patrick Collins, English-trained economist. And his work was groundbreaking, and everybody considered it to be state-of-the-art. And he was the only one that did credible market surveys with, without bias or as, without as much bias as possible, and he ran the numbers. So we, we had estimates, and I forget what they were, for what it would take uh, you know, to break even and to do this and that. But Musk was so revolutionary that everything was put in the trash can almost overnight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, and uh, some people have asked me, you know, what changed the industry or, you know, what are your triggers? And to me, there are two triggers. I mean, this is not the reason for your call. But there are two triggers that, that really changed the industry into an industry. That changed alt space or new space, whatever you want to call it, into, uh, into something. And Musk and SpaceX were one, and the other was CubeSats. And those mm-hmm. two things opened up space access from comms and remote sensing and to science, technology, and engineering to launches and eventually human launches that you couldn't have dreamed of if you were taking 10 grams of LSD. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they altered a lethargic, dream fancy, fanfare industry into the real McCoy, and it's been evolving ever since. And God bless CubeSats and I forget the guy's name, but but uh, he's he's a real famous engineer who developed CubeSats over uh, as part of San Luis Obispo, and now he's at Moorhead University. And uh, damn it, I can't believe I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, God bless them for for their vision and their insight and their perseverance and their ability to fund, because without the money, there's nothing. And they they made an industry come alive that would probably not have come alive or if it did it wouldn't look like anything like we're seeing now which is booming and it wouldn't have happened 
maybe even in my lifetime. So, um, to me, Musk and... Oh, God, I can't believe who I... Who the CubeSite guy is. Let me see if I can research. To, they, they get the credit for it in my book. And, uh, but Patrick Collins ran the numbers, had the economics, had the market share, had the market survey. But it's all garbage. Given you know what, how the industry has developed and rockets have developed and engineering and miniaturization and stuff like that have developed, um, it's not the same world when I wrote my dissertation. Mm. You know, I'm sorry to well, say I, I wish I'd been relevant for a hundred years, but um, Mr. Musk uh, put me out of date. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, as I was saying, uh, Starship 2.0 may be another paradigm shift that we'll have to credit to Elon, but it's going to make another revolution that you basically said has happened over the last 25 years. It's going to totally change the economics. Anyway, I've already used my allocation of time, so uh, until next time, my friend. Marshall, wait a minute. You don't get off that easy. Why do you think Starship 2.0 is going to do that? Well, as I said, I've been playing with the spreadsheets, not like I'm getting any real uh, thing off the Internet, but I'm playing with the spreadsheets, and I go, uh, with Raptor 2.0 engine, I think Starship 2.0, the 60-meter, 60-foot version, has a good probability of making it. And then I saw the Raptor 3 engine test, and I went, if they can get Raptor 3 uh, up to the Raptor, um, uh, uh, up to the Merlin engine reliability, uh, I think uh, Starship 2.0 is probably uh, a certainty, and uh, you might even have uh, Starship 3.0 after that, but at that point you get to the weird Weirdness of like uh, the uh, Boeing 747. Uh, why didn't they build a bigger uh, passenger airplane? Well, it wasn't economical. So there's a point out there where the economics, even though you can put more into space, uh, nobody's interested in uh, shipping that much in one load. So uh, 2.0 seems like a very solid concept to me. Well. Stay in touch on it and, and keep me posted. And regarding CubeSats, it was Professor Jordy uh, Puig-Suari, I always get his name wrong, and he was at, at uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, and he worked with Bob Twiggs, who at the time was at Stanford University, and they proposed the CubeSat reference design in 1999 for uh, graduate students to come up with uh, affordable uh, designs to build, test, operate, and actually fly a spacecraft. And that, uh, and now that, that you mention it, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Science Friday on NPR uh, last Friday. Uh-huh. They had a bit on that. Well, and they should. And uh, it was, it, you know, it was kind of cutesy and not all that intellectual, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it was the foundation for where we're going today. Yeah, so those two, along with Musk, they had, they had different segments of the industry. They were the triggers, in my estimation, that revolutionized space. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, other, what other issue 
do you want to test me on? <laughs> uh, why are you staying in Oklahoma? What, what, what's with that? Oh, well, uh, right at the moment, I'd definitely like to leave Oklahoma because the uh, pollen count is through the roof and my sinuses are balking. <laughs> well, I, I miss Tulsa in my high school and other days, but I don't. I'm, I love Las Vegas, so I'm not really yeah. interested in going back. All right, Marshall, until the next time, okay? Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Um, we have a, an email from uh, Fremont John. He posted on the blog, and he gave us um, more, more information with some relevant links to Astronomy Live, and that pertains to Jacob's call earlier uh, in the show, in fact, the first call of the, of the show. So uh, make sure you see Fremont's uh, blog post, and hopefully um, the gentleman will outreach to me, and, and, and I really would like to... Uh, maybe build a show around that. Sounds very, very interesting to me that an amateur is able to do that. Hey, listeners, I was going to give out our phone number. I guess I don't need to do that. Um, good afternoon. Uh, this is Space Show Open Lines, and I'm your host, David. And who are you, please, and what's on your mind? Um, this is John in Fort Worth, and I guess you can guess what's probably on my mind, right? <laughs> well, uh, um, what are you going to talk about, UAPs, or are you going to talk about something more down-to-earth or the eight-foot alien in Las Vegas? Well, I think this is pretty much, well, more down-to-earth the way I talk about it. I'm, I'm talking particularly about the um, David Grush whistleblower stuff and the ongoing congressional uh, activity. I think that's... Somewhat down to earth since it's actually government policy and involves taxpayers' money anyhow. So. Well, it's <laughs> unconfirmed government policy because you're taking David Grush at face value. Uh, well, if I'm taking him at face value, but uh, but you know, I don't know the people. I, I keep seeing there's a lot of misperception though about about this uh, out there. That, that, I mean, it isn't just like you know Bob Lazar came out and made a claim, right? I mean. This has actually been reviewed by the uh, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community and found to be uh, a worthy topic. I mean, that he's done other investigations, uh, you know, at the classified level to, to verify that this is a real, a real issue. And that's what's not true about almost all the others. Um, okay, so... Um, so what do you want to say about it? I mean, I, I don't think Grush is, is Bob Lazar by any means. No, uh, but, but the thing I'm just trying to say, and well, Congress apparently now this has gone to the congressional committees, and now we've got, got uh, Marco Rubio has, has stated just recently that there are other people have come forward to the committee providing similar or substantiating type information to them, which are different people, and some of them are apparently just completely separate. So I think things are starting to move in that subject now, I think. It's going to take a while, obviously, because of the fact that you're dealing with things that seem to be buried pretty much into deep classification. Um, but I think there are, apparently there's going to be some kind of open hearing, although I'm kind of wondering what they're going to say in the open hearing. <laughs> Nothing, and, and, and unless one can get access to uh, what's being said in, in private and, and why they're keeping this a secret, and in, in secret, then uh, the whole discussion has lost interest to me because I don't believe it's credible. So um, 
Well, I don't know the answer to that. It's happening. I mean, well, it's happening, but it, it, it's none of it is is verifiable. None of it is reliable. You can't go double check it. You can't go do diligence about it. You you can't do anything about it except to hope that these guys are telling the truth and that maybe they they quit covering things up. I suspect the cover up more has to do with their idea of national security than it does uh, keeping. E.T. or alien stuff away from the public, but uh, and and the fact that I think it's it's a national security perception, whether that's true or not, I have no clue. That gives them cause to uh, con- continue a cover up, and and then they they go have these secret meetings and they tell people all this national security stuff. For all I know, they they're telling them that it's Russian, Chinese, and American weapons, and we can't afford to let it out of the bag. I don't know that they're not telling them that, so we have to keep making them think it's from outer space and keeping it classified. Maybe that's what it's all about. But unless we somehow break through why this story has to be classified, do they really think we'll crumble if we're told the truth about flying saucers and E.T.? I mean, it's just mind-boggling that they have to classify this. Well, I mean, uh, why? It's because it has been for what, from almost the 1940s, so that's why it ha- is. And uh, as to why they made the decision back then, and it's, it hasn't been changed since, and it's a different issue. But the point is, though, that the, the issue is that I think that they're also proposing additional legislation on top of what happened last year, which is going to require basically even the private contractors to within 180 days of the enactment of the law to start providing what they have on these kind of things. So that, if that passes, that will be another interesting development here. And well, I see, I just, I, I'm not in agreement with you. I don't think it's interesting because we're only given what they want us to know. And, and that, well, but, to me, is unsatisfactory. But if this is true, this this is scientifically revolutionary. I mean, how do you it, know it's true, John? How are you well, going to confirm? Well, well, I, I mean, come on, it is true. The question is, how long is it going to be hidden? I mean, if if this was all bogus at this point, Congress would have dropped it like a well, no, no, it's over with. Not true. It depends on what Congress is being told. They could be told that it's something that you couldn't dream of in your wildest imagination about national security interests between China, Russia, and the United States that you and I would never in a million years dream of. And they could be keeping the ruse up because this is so, so crucial and vital to keep this, whatever it is, quiet and and secret that going with the UFO ruse is the only way to keep it hush-hush. And you don't know that that's not what's being told them. Well, I know well, I'm imagining it, but... Rush has made public statements that are not consistent at all with what you're saying. Well, but... He, but why, why would, if it was legitimate national security, conventional stuff, why would there be a whistleblower? Why would it be referred to the committees, and why would they be taking it seriously? I, I don't know, but maybe it's all part of, a, of how they, they do disinformation. I mean, you know, when they do disinformation, they put out... A, a little bit of uh, genuine stuff to to go along with the with the bogus stuff. Maybe this is how uh, they're they're trying to keep it alive because their conventional story that that you and I've been told all our lives is is absolutely wearing thin, and they probably need to to reinvent the story. So I don't know, John. I I don't have any idea, but unless 
one can do some due diligence on all of this stuff, and all you have to do is believe what the, the whistleblower is saying or what this one is saying or credibility with a congressional hearing. And why should Congress be credible on this when they're not credible on almost anything else? So I, I don't know. I remain a huge skeptic, and I don't understand why all of this has to be classified. If, if there was contact, if there were ETs coming here, if there were extraterrestrial spacecraft, do you really think our society is going to cave in fear and fall apart and, and our systems, including our religious systems, are going to go shudder and, and pray for help and wisdom all of a sudden to keep us alive? Do you really think we're, we're going to be so fraught and dismayed and depressed that we're going to be hanging ourselves and, and going crazy that uh, the government rolls out technology and confirms that, that this stuff is, is for real and that there are extraterrestrials. Are we going to have that much reaction and shock that's so adverse to our nation? I think we have more reverse, more shock and, and adverse nausea and stuff going on with the culture in America today than we would ever have with announcing extraterrestrials are for real and we're ending the cover-up. Well, remember, a lot of this is just the momentum of the past. I mean, it, the decisions to make, keep this very secret were made decades ago, and nobody's changed it. I think that's the full point. No. But, but the key thing here, though, is, is progress toward declassification. I think you're missing the point. It isn't believing these people. If the, if the Senate can get, the, and the House can get the executive branch to declassify certain things, at least the, the, mere, the, the actual existence of this stuff and its reality, that's a major step ahead. I mean, right now, and that's that, that. You need to have some powerful congressional committees that, first of all, have to figure out who's been really running this show, which I think is a big mystery here. Is what agency really has this stuff? You know, I mean, I think that's a big one right there. And I think they're trying to push to finding that right now. I think that's what's happening. Well, you need to um, have a little more discernment, in my opinion, and maybe I need to be a little bit more trusting, but. I'm not trusting. I have, I'm totally skeptical. I'd love it to be tree, look, free. I wish the eight foot alien in, in the Las Vegas backyard was true. I, I wish the guy said my vehicle crashed and I need to get home. Help me. You know, I, I think it'd be wonderful and, and I think, you know, people would not freak out. I don't care if he's eight, eight feet high and was the purple well, people leader. But, you know, we're not trusted. To be adults, and maybe there's a reason for that, because maybe Congress knows we're not adults because they're not adults. I don't know, John, but I'm, I'm skeptical, and you're not going to convince me, and Grush isn't going to convince me, and not until they end this damn stupid cover-up of why this subject has to be so secret. Um, and I've not heard a good, a good reason for it, and national security doesn't work for me unless it is so secretive in terms of West weapons or something like that. I, I don't know. But I've not seen any UFO kind of technology that's talked about in the culture making its way into weapons or military systems yet. But maybe, yeah. it, maybe you know, that's on the way. I don't know. I really, I doubt it. I doubt that's happened. So, well, I, I mean, the whole thing is, um, there's a lot of mythologies out there, too. I, I have to admit that. And that, you know, like stuff like I was listening to some of this 
the Dr. Greer stuff this morning. I couldn't stand it after about 20 minutes. That was yeah, so I, had absurd, to, but I had to what? quit listening to his three-hour uh, video. I, I made it through 90 minutes, and, and that was all I could take. Yeah. Even well, though they are well, supposedly eyewitness testimonies, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I saw that. There, some of this stuff is, I mean, the idea that the neutrino experiment at the South Pole is some kind of a space weapon to fight alien, that's really not, nonsense in that thing. But remember, that's part of the cover-up of the thing is all the f blowing stories. That's how you cover it up, is make people not believe it make, by putting out so many outrageous stories about the cover-up, the much smaller truths that everybody just kind of ignores. I think that's been the technique. Like the nine, eight-foot-tall uh, alien showed up just about the time Grush showed up, right? I mean, <laughs> but you need to have that kind of distraction. <laughs> I don't know if the people involved in it or just coincidence they seized upon some random report and kind of was By the way, something behind it. But, the, you know. the, the latest on the eight-foot alien in the Las Vegas press is that the cops have put out a notice that says trespassing is... A fella is a is a crime punishable by jail, and we are urging people to quit trespassing on the the people's lawn that saw this thing. And you're not welcome there. And the police know you're not welcome there. And we will enforce the law. And the family is armed. So uh, that was a press release I saw yesterday. So uh, I don't know where the where the family is, but the family has not rescinded their story despite all of this adverse publicity and trespassers on the land looking in the bushes and stuff like that. So, um, and uh, I don't know if they were smoking or, or taking something, I, but I, it doesn't seem plausible to me. But I know they're armed, so you don't want to go snooping around on their lawn. Well, I won't go there. I mean, <laughs> and the other the other places I wouldn't go to either because they because they're protected by government security, and you go to prison if you tried to get in there legally. So the point is. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, listen, I I I hope you turn out to be correct, and I turn out to be overly conservative and cautious, and I'm missing the boat. But because I would love for all of this to be real, and I wish they remove the curtain of secrecy over it because I don't think any of it's essential and I don't think knowing about E.T. would freak any of us out unless you're already freaked out about something. So, um, but we'll see. I'm just interested in the science behind it. I mean, this, 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 this would confirm that really advanced propulsion technology is possible. Absolutely. I mean, I mean really advanced stuff. I mean, beyond our known science. And that would be amazing. I mean, Prevailing views is that isn't really possible. I think. I mean, and so, absolutely. Anything uh, else on your mind? I'll see if someone else wants in. I think that's a bit for now. All right. Uh, Maybe someone uh, will pick up on your call and and bring more into it. So thanks, John. Okay. Right. Bye. 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 Uh, while we're waiting to see if someone else wants to call us, eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Adrian in San Diego sent in a note. Starship is merely the Model T, wow, it's going to be a busy day, good, is merely the Model T as far as the real future of space is concerned, and the show will really get going once that space nuclear propulsion, initial thermal and later electric, will then kick into gear the full migration to Mars and the industry to mine the asteroids for their resources. By the way, if anyone has seen the new film, Asteroid City, 
um, call in and tell us what you thought about it. I'm going to go see it tomorrow. But uh, I hear it's pretty weird, and it's not really about asteroids, but there is a UFO involved in it. If anyone has seen it, I'd love to get a, a film report from you, so give us a call. Uh, we have another caller on hold. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome uh, to the Open Line Show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, David. Here's the other John from Fremont, California. Uh, yep. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, John from Fort Worth mentioned the uh, uh, Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory at the South Pole, uh-huh. and 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 that's that's one of the topics I uh, wanted to bring to your attention. Um, there was a paper published um, on June 29th in Science uh, that revealed the first map of the Milky Way in uh, neutrinos. And uh, this this Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory at the South Pole is really remarkable um, and is doing uh, cutting-edge science. Um, and so uh, this is the first time that, that uh, we've been able to um, find where these neutrinos are coming from and uh, it's still kind of a mystery um, what uh, what is causing them. But um, I can I can post this on the on the blog, and I think your your listeners might be interested in it. Um, do you think you know, the, te- the, the, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think the technology came from ET? No. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> uh, that's what he was talking about. Yeah, I know, and it's ridiculous. But um, anyway, it, 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 it's incredible because these neutrinos don't interact with anything, and so they rarely um, hit the detectors, and they, they, they bury these detectors, you know, uh, like a kilometer down in the ice under, in the South Pole, and they're detecting neutrinos coming through the Earth from the other side of the Earth. And every once in a while, um, they'll they'll get a detection. Now, most of them come from the sun. The sun is a big neutrino source. But um, what's interesting about this is every once in a while, they get an, uh, a galactic source or even an extra galactic source. And um, what they do is they they put out an announcement to the astronomical community when they get a detection. And then they point other telescopes in that direction, and in some cases they found active galactic, uh, active um, galactic nuclei, which are you know huge, um, supermassive black holes in in galaxies that are generating these neutrinos. And they've been able to pinpoint a few um, neutrino sources outside our galaxy and in, in other galaxies. So uh, it's an interesting paper, and uh, I thought. Um, listeners might be interested in it. Okay. Yeah, please do post it. We'd appreciate that. Yeah, so the only other thing I wanted to mention uh, is uh, I'm just finishing up my interview with Alex Landecker, who's with the Florida-based Astrosexological Research Institute. And uh, as, as you and I know, he gave a talk at ISDC on sex and space. And 
Um, I, 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 the interview is just awesome. Um, he, he, he talks about all the, the issues that we've been talking about as far as the uh, gravity prescription and then also, um, you know, there's, there's going to be um, some risk takers that want to be the first people to, you know, have the sex in space. I'll just be honest with you. And um, so, I mean, this, this is, can cause all kinds of uh, liability and um, ethical questions that need to be addressed. And, and he's, he's at the cutting edge of this research. He just published a, a, a green paper. Are you familiar with green papers? This is the first time I've heard of them. Um, um, I think so. I'm, go ahead, and then I'll tell you if, if that's what I'm talking. That's what I think you're talking about. Yeah, well, green. You know, I'm used to white papers, but green papers are, are usually published by um, governments uh, trying to foster discussion on on on, on topics that need regulation. And uh, he, with a with a, a team of other researchers, he he's co-author on this green paper that came out in April, and they're attempting to um, you know get relevant stakeholders to address uh, uncontrolled human conception, uh, and he he defines that as uh, without societal approval for human conception, that is with regulatory approval from relevant bodies representing. A broad, a broad societal consensus. And um, so then we get into a discussion about who's, who's going to, you know, um, do this regulation. Is it going to be public? Is it going to be private? Is it going to be, a, you know, an industry uh, consensus and so on? Um, and then uh, we also um, uh, get into uh, talks about... Um, the gravity prescription, and you know, he he worked closely with um, uh, Jim Logan uh, on 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 his PhD, and and uh, got some input from him on that. And uh, we get into the discussion of, of um, you know uh, some of the some of the folks like, uh, in fact, Bob Zubrin uh, feels that um, you know pregnancy. Uh, in 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 uh, less than one gravity may not be an issue because there's essentially neutral buoyancy in the womb, you know, um, during during uh, um, gestation, and uh, Alex addresses that. So I'm not gonna I'm I'm uh, not gonna um, uh, get into detail about the responses. I'd like to be able to. Um, publish my blog post and then I'll I'll uh, I'll send it to you. But um, he's coming on the show, isn't he? In August? Um, yeah, late August. He's coming on in uh, August 27th. Okay, that's pretty far down the road. Okay. So um, anyway, that's that's all I had. Uh, and uh, do, do you want me to once the post goes live? Do you want me to post it on this? Uh, this blog page? Yeah, or, please do. What does he say about sex in space if you're practicing birth control? Well, we got into a discussion on that. So, so birth control needs to be validated in, in microgravity, and, and it hasn't. So you don't know it's it needs to, no, okay, Yeah, validated in terms of is it effective. Right. Right. So... So um, 
that's that's a really interesting discussion, and um, you know, um, he, he does address that. So. Um, well, August 27th, everybody, um, we can do it. Anything else, John? Yeah, um, I, I also wanted to uh, let the listeners know that the long-awaited um, uh, results from uh, uh, JAXA on, on uh, mice in 1.6G in their centrifuge in the Kibo module on the International Space Station that we've been waiting for since 2019. That got published. And uh, I can't remember if I if I put the link to that study on your blog. No, but um, you sent I, it to me, but why don't you put it on the blog since you're bringing it up today? I will. Okay. okay. Thank you, John. Well, that's it. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, listeners, uh, you know, let us know... Uh, if you want to call 866-687-7223, you know, we jumped to a phone call right away, so I didn't even get to make whatever announcements I would have made. Uh, but I, I do want to repeat that we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're listener-supported, and we absolutely need your support. So if you like the show, talking to guests, having open lines programs, talking to other guests, uh, support us, please. If you're a federal U.S. taxpayer, you get a deduction for your gift uh, the, on our homepage, thespaceshow.com. There is a PayPal link in the upper right corner that will take you to our PayPal account. And um, if you're a donor uh, using Zelle, the email address is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And then if you're using a check and you're mailing it to us, it's made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation, and it goes to our offices in Las Vegas. That address should be on the PayPal button that's on our website, where you can easily get it from me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. But we absolutely do need your support, and uh, we hope that you will support us. As for our sponsors, which you too can become one of, uh, you get the banner ad going across the homepage. And on the long formats, I can read a PR statement, which I'll do at the end of this show. But right now, I'll shout out to Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix in Luxembourg, our newest sponsor, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox, Dr. Heim Benaroya, and the Space Foundation. Uh, so if you're interested in uh, sponsoring us and and uh, being part of the Space Show program, email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And uh, when the show ends, don't get off the line uh, because I'll read some sponsor messages uh, at the end of the program for our great sponsors. We would not be doing the program uh, without them. Uh, email for today, if, if you want to use it, is drspace at thespaceshow.com. And the toll-free line, which you have been using, 1-866-687-7223. And uh, we've used up a little bit more than the first hour of our 90-minute program. So if you would like to call us, our line is available. It is open. Uh, any topic is fair game, as you know. 1-866-687-7223. I'm kind of curious, does anybody out there listening, 
really think Musk and Zuckerberg are going to duke it out for charity in some cage fight. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a PR scam, but, you know, maybe it is for real. Uh, Give us a call and let us know if you think that's a possibility. 1-866-687-7223. And uh, another item caught my, well, let's take this call first, okay? Uh, uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to uh, our open lines program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Well, it's uh, John from Fort Worth. You mentioned Asteroid City, and I'm, I'm guessing probably nobody else is going to call in and actually seen it, so I have. Well, so tell us, is it? What's, what do you think of it? Uh, it's kind of a camp, campy retro comedy, you know, circa 1955, I think, or something like that. Setting. Right. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, it's weird. I'll say that for it. it I, won't, I won't tell you what the asteroid is, but it will be less less impressive than you would think. Isn't there a UFO in the show, too, or something like that, a flying saucer or something? Yeah, they do have one of those shows up on Alien. So would you recommend it? Um, hmm. Well, it depends on who, who the person is. Yeah, you should go see it, I think. But everybody else might. It depends on their taste. If they like really kind of offbeat movies... Set in the 1955 period, I guess that would be a, a, a that would be interesting. I mean, well, the director's an award-winning director. He's very, very famous. So, right. Uh, I mean, it, like I said, this is not your typical movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is really, really kind of a campy thing about that period, and I guess kind of a nostalgia thing a little bit. Like, the <laughs> what, what, was the theater crowded when you saw it? What did the audience think? Were they booing it or anything like that? They were fairly quiet. I, I, I believe that um, the audience was, a, was the kind of audience, just looking at the people there, that probably would go to see a show like that. You know, I'm trying to say it's kind of something. It, it was the, probably the smallest theater uh, in the multiplex I went to. And... Um, but there were several people there, and they, nobody booed it or anything. It, well, they're probably followers of the director because, again, he he's had some really big hit, hits and an Academy Award winner. So yeah. I think uh, it's kind of interesting. It's funny, if nothing else, in a lot of ways. Did you actually laugh in it? Oh, uh, maybe a little bit. I, I thought it was kind. Of, yeah, I kind of did. So. I, it, I, I, I like the part where, where the biggest train's coming by, and it's got this way, it's got this 10 megaton bomb, do not detonate. <laughs> so it, it took over the, uh, the old landmark Sunset Theater on Sunset Strip in West Hollywood, which is a very famous theater, and, uh, for its premiere, okay? And they, yeah. they said people appeared in costumes, sets, and even the concession stand sign uh, was made into a 1950s era concession stand uh, sign on food prices and stuff from the from the film industry. So, um, you know, uh, apparently uh, the Hollywood crowd got into it. Yeah, it's got an all-star cast too. So I mean, you know, Tom Hanks and it's you know, well, it was, if you're if, if you're the kind of person to see three movies a year and want the big. Bo- Blockbuster type thing, then no, that's not your show. If you somebody, if you see somebody as many as I do and want something a little different than your typical thing, you might like it. <laughs> I kind of did. It's a little strange, but you know. Wes Anderson, who's the award-winning director, is a guy who 
who directed it, and I, I'm sure a lot of people are, are going out to see it. Um, so it, this is it's a group of people uh, um, ranging from all sorts of things uh, that, that are at a, some kind of an astronomy convention. That's what I was told, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a stargazers is one part of it. <laughs> a little bit of a takeoff on the, the those guys selling little plots of land out there, and there's a lot of different little things in it. Um, well, I'll let you know if I if I enjoy it because I'm going to go see it with Dr. Sherry Bell tomorrow. So okay, uh, well, I hope you enjoy. It. If, if, like I said, if it, if you want something different than the typical live action comic book movie they put out in the summers, this is definitely that. It's definitely something different. <laughs> Alright, I'll let you know what I think of it, and thanks for the movie review. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, so, listeners, uh, you can still call. Again, pretty much anything is, uh, is a topic. 1-866-687-7223. I'm curious, as a follow-up to John's earlier call, uh, are any of you sold by the whistleblower testimony of, of David Grush on the UAE stuff, uh, I mean UAP stuff? And, and the disclosure of uh, whatever UAPs or, or flying saucers or ET stuff might be. Does anyone want to comment on it? Are you following it? Uh, is there any interest um, that you have on it? Uh, so, um, you know, if you have a point of view on that, uh, it might be different than John's point of view, but uh, absolutely uh, let us know. And um, I saw an article, and this, I'll throw this out there, where um, there were some proposals for uh, Congress cutting, Congress meaning the House of Representatives, cutting uh, parts of the NASA budget uh, in cost savings efforts. And um, that would go directly to either delaying and shoving off into the future uh, the Artemis and Return to the Moon plans, or possibly even canceling them. So is anybody else following this uh, House of Representatives possible budget plan and cuts to NASA and how that might impact Artemis? Does anyone have any thoughts or opinions on that? We have an email. Okay, this is the posting from Fremont John that, that he called in uh, about a little while ago. So his, his two posts are, are back up on the, on the site. Um, what, what would you think if they actually did reduce NASA funding and uh, somehow it deferred or delayed or really injured uh, Artemis in return to the moon? I'm sure China's not having anything cut to return to the moon. We got another caller. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, who are you? Where are you, please? Hi, I'm uh, from Sarasota, uh, Florida. Uh, so uh, I think a friend of mine called in earlier on Astronomy Live. Um, yes, he did. Uh, uh, absolutely. What's your first name again? Uh, Scott. Okay. It's nice to talk to you, Scott. So uh, you've developed this tracking method for rocket launches, right? Right, right. Yeah, rocket launches as well as uh, satellites, uh, and so I've got a couple programs I've developed to do this with off-the-shelf telescope hardware. Uh, in part, you know, I started these efforts to try to document uh, SpaceX when they started proposing landing their boosters. I knew it'd be uh, really cool to be able to get a shot of the booster 
launching, turning around, flipping over, and, and coming back to the launch site to land at uh, one of the landing zones. And that's what I've been able to accomplish with this software. So that was one of my first goals with that. And how did that turn out? Were you able to accomplish and, and get the images that you wanted? I did. I did. So the, the very first time I was able to get a completely unbroken shot from launch to landing in one cut was actually the very first Falcon Heavy launch. Uh, and then more recently, in January of this year, I, I kind of got the same shot again with uh, a higher resolution camera and a bigger telescope. And so my friend who called in earlier was uh, a guy who helped with that, uh, running the focuser on the telescope while I was controlling the, the pointing and uh came out really well. I mean, you can really see these boosters come off the Falcon Heavy center core and turn around and fly back, and it's it's stunning footage. Is this on your uh, YouTube channel? It is. It is, yeah. My YouTube channel, Astronomy Live, if you search for that on YouTube, you can find my channel pretty easily. I've got 30,000 subscribers now. And uh, so I also provide this software. Uh, both the source code is on GitHub, so anyone can download it and try it themselves. And uh, if you join as a channel member, uh, as an added bonus, I give people a compiled executable so they don't have to compile it themselves from the source code. Have you uh, made any of your videos available to SpaceX and have they responded? They haven't responded uh, per se. I will say, you know, it's funny. You, you kind of have to be careful with these things sometimes. As an anecdote, a friend of mine who also films some of these launches with me with my software, he's got his own uh, set up his own rig for tracking these launches. Uh, he was tracking by hand at the time, but he filmed uh, the fairings coming off and starting to emit thruster pulses. And this was before SpaceX announced they were starting to work on trying to recover the fairings. It was not public knowledge at all. But it was a twilight launch, and he caught these fairing pulses, these, these uh, thruster pulses coming off the fairings after they separated from the rocket. He didn't even realize the full implications of what he was capturing right away. He just kind of noticed something was going on there. And by the next morning, people on the Internet, having seen his video, figured out what was going on, that SpaceX was starting to try to recover the fairings when they hadn't announced anything yet. So the, the punchline to that story is he actually received uh, a message from a, a lawyer for SpaceX asking him to take down the footage and inquiring about where he acquired the footage from. Now, he was on public property, and so they had no no leverage, but if he had been filming that from behind the security gate, if he had been someone who had like a, a pass, you know, a pass or a, a, a card, NASA ID badge, to try to film that up close, then they might have tried to exert some leverage, you know, to get his, his access revoked for revealing proprietary information. As it turns out, they had no leverage, so all they could do was kindly ask, and all he would do is tell them no. <laughs> I mean, the cat was out of the bag already, but you have to be, you have to be careful because you know, it, it, as SpaceX is a private company, if you film something that maybe they're trying something experimental and it's not been done before and no one knows about it and you review it, they may not be so happy with you, actually, which is kind of funny. Well, but they can't control that if, if, if it's out there in the public for somebody who has the, the capability of seeing it to see it. I mean, what, what do they expect? They, they expect oh, absolutely. privacy up to orbit? Right. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They have no control over it. Uh, you know, it's just sort of the th kind of thing where all they can do is say no, and I guess they figure all the worst that can happen is you would say, no, thank you, I'm not going to com comply with you, and that's what happened. But, you know, they, they definitely will try if, if you end up revealing something that maybe was off-nominal or you reveal something that 
reveals, especially anything proprietary that they're trying that's new, uh, they don't necessarily like that. Um, but I have had some interest expressed by smaller companies uh, in my tracking software. Uh, Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen Suborbitals was one. Uh-huh. You might have heard of, heard of them. Uh, Exos Aerospace was another. I helped them with a, with a launch. Um, so, yeah, smaller private companies that are developing new rocket systems will sometimes express interest because it is a, a cheaper kind of tracking solution. Uh, I did offer information about it to NASA. They had an RFI uh, or a request for information out uh, a month or two ago looking for what is available in the private sector for being able to track launches. One of the things they were looking at doing in terms of trying to reduce costs for the Artemis program is seeing if they could outsource to the private sector uh, tracking of their launches. Because right now that's all done, of course, with government resources and, you know, they're keeping people on staff to do this, I'm sure, and it's probably expensive just even if they're sitting around not doing anything. And so they were looking at trying to privatize that and they just wanted to see what what options were out there, what uh, systems were available commercially. So I, I sent in, I, I only found about it, out about it at the very last minute before the deadline was due. So I, I threw something together real quick overnight and sent it to them. It was kind of, unfortunately, half-baked. I wish I'd had more time to put a package together, really going into detail on the system. But, uh, you know, I tried to offer it to them as well. So who knows? Um, I, I think it's... Uh, I think it's important, though, to document these missions. And, and speaking of Artemis, you know, I was able to track not only the launch of Artemis, but uh, the Orion capsule as it as it went out to the moon and came back. And I did some independent tracking of that with telescopes here on the ground. Um, so I'm hoping that that program doesn't get canceled. I know they're talking about, you know, Congress is talking about pulling money, and, and it might even result in the cancellation of the program. And I think that would be a real shame because it, it could be a really inspiring program for the future. I know I was personally inspired to get into to spacecraft tracking like this from seeing uh, old photos of the Apollo program that were that were actually captured by amateur astronomers tracking the Apollo missions traveling to the moon and back. There were a few amateur astronomers who were able to capture pictures of that of various Apollo missions going to and from the moon in the um, in the cislunar space, and that inspired me to try to do the same thing now with the Artemis program coming up. Uh, you got an email from James in Chicago wanting to know if you're tracking the Tesla. Oh, I did, actually. So, uh, yeah, but for about, oh, about 11 days, I want to say, after the launch, I was tracking it, heading into deep space. I tracked it out to almost eight times the distance to the moon. Once it got about that far, that's about as as uh, as faint as it could be while, my, while a telescope I was using was still able to detect it. Uh, but there for about or over a week, uh, I was tracking it, into deep space with a variety of uh, telescopes. Now, in that case, I was using uh, telescopes on the iTelescope network. So this is iTelescope.net. This is a, um, a commercial website where you can rent time on very large telescopes, 20 inches uh, in some cases, uh, very large, very powerful telescopes, and command them to a point wherever you want. And so I, I pointed some of those scopes over at, this, uh, at the Falcon Heavy second stage in Tesla, and I was able to see it for quite some time, and I was able to independently track it, which was really cool. Um, I have a question for you because uh, Celestis has a, a flight coming up uh, where they're going to send their memorial ashes to be uh, interred on the moon. Uh, it's to end up on the ULA Vulcan rocket, which is back in the hangar getting repaired, so it's unclear exactly when it's going to take off. Is that something that, that you would track or... Would you reach out to Celestis to track it, and could you 
get its landing or crash on the moon? So that's a great question. So I, I actually uh, have a personal connection to that one as well. Now, I, I don't have anyone's ashes on it, but uh, a friend of mine who passed away a couple years ago, uh, we were able to get some of his photos put on a memory card that's going to be on that lander. Um, uh, and so that was that was done through another YouTuber who whose name is escaping me at the moment, and I apologize. But um, he had an offer to be able to... Uh, Put pictures or whatever you wanted on a memory card that's going to go on that lander. So I've got his his photos uh, on that lander, and I'm going to be tracking it as much as I can. Uh, so that should be the inaugural launch of Vulcan, which will hopefully be successful. And I, I do plan to track that, and also to track uh, the vehicle on its way to the moon. Now, once it gets to the moon, there's so much light from the moon generally that you can't you can't really see it. It's too faint to see once it gets that close to the moon. But on its way to the moon, usually within the first 24 hours or so, it ought to be uh, visible at some point, hopefully. Now, it's going to depend on exactly when they end up launching and what the sun, sun angle is on the spacecraft and all of that. But um, with, with Locke, hopefully I'll be able to track it heading to the moon, and, and hopefully they have a successful successful landing. Have you, uh, we'll have you reached out to Celestis about any of this tracking? No, not, I hadn't considered that. I, I will consider uh, reaching out to them. Now, usually um, a spacecraft like this will sometimes be listed on NASA's webpage on the uh, JPL Horizons system, and this is a system that NASA provides where you can get information on the expected orbits of these, of these vehicles before they launch. Um, but certainly if I have trouble locating that information, I, I'll consider reaching out to Celestis. Maybe they can get a hold of the information I need for tracking. Basically, I... Uh, my software uses uh, the orbital elements of the spacecraft to predict where it's going to be in the sky and point the telescope. So I have my mom and two dogs on that mission. So I, I have a, a vested interest in it, at least getting to the moon, because even if it crashes on the moon, they're still on the moon. So uh, right. I, I, I think it's a win, even if it, if the lander from Astro, whatever, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't land correctly. But, um, you know, it would be great if, if we uh, had access to the path that was taking to the moon and, and down to the moon as part of the package, uh, you know, that, uh, that we get from Celestis or just in general. I'd say, and, and here's how it got to the moon, and, and then here's where we know it crashed or here's where we know it landed. But, um, you know, if you, if you can do it or you reach out to Celestis or something, Keep me in mind and let me know because I do have a, an interest in that uh, flight. Absolutely, that's a great, great point. I will, I will definitely contact them, and especially if I get anything successfully, I'll, I'll provide that to them, and maybe they can provide that to all their, all their clients. Yeah, you probably have contacts, but if you want uh, an introduction to anyone at, at Celestis, let me know, and I'd be happy to do it or give you a reference. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, have you ever? Uh, gotten in trouble for tracking a government uh, launch? Have they, have they said no, 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 like a, a security launch, a national security launch or something like that? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll fess up to that. I, I kind of did one time. It was a, it was a air, I think it was an Air Force communication satellite. I mean, it wasn't anything that I thought was all that secret. It was just, you know, it's a commsat. Who cares, right? Well, they, they, they didn't necessarily appreciate my, my high-resolution tracking of the launch, and, and uh, I, I had a, a few words from uh, the media officer out of the, the Space Force station, so 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of learned a lesson there about uh, making sure to be careful about who sees it or, or how I phrase things, yeah. Uh, interesting. What's, uh, what's coming up? Uh, have you got something on, on the agenda to, to follow on the launch coming up in the next couple of days or weeks? Uh, so the, the next one I'm really interested in is, of course, the next Falcon Heavy later this month. Um, if I can, I, I would like to try to, to track that. I don't know if that one's going to involve an LZ-1, LZ-2 landing. I know this last one, Viasat 3, was fully disposable. You know, they, they disposed of the cores. They didn't bring them back. And so I, I used that one as a, as a practice launch from, from 140 miles away using predictive tracking uh, with my software to be able to pinpoint it so that it was already in the frame when it came over the roof line. It was, it was perfectly in frame of a refractor I had on the telescope. So I might, I, I don't know, depending on uh, if it's going to be a reusable uh, pair of boosters or a disposable pair of boosters, I might uh, make a decision on where to set up to launch because one of the things I'm trying to do is, is get ready to try to track Starship. When that eventually launches, I probably won't be able to go all the way to Texas. I'll probably be here in Florida. And so my, my plan is to film it as it passes south of Florida uh, using predictive tracking to point the telescope where it's expected to be. But, of course, that only works if, if the launch is successful. The last one didn't make it far enough uh, for us to see it from here in Florida, of course. Uh, Tony Cook in Pasadena, California, sent you a note and says, How visible will Lunar Starship be near the moon? Oh, that's a great question. I haven't done the math on that uh, to be sure. My, my my gut reaction is it won't be it still won't be big enough to be visible when it's near the moon. But if it's in a um, if it's in a halo orbit with gateway or something like that, where it's relatively far from the moon in the sky, it ought to be visible. Uh, I would expect I would just uh, assumption here, but I would expect gateway to be visible with my telescope, especially if there's a lunar starship at gateway. Can you um, track? Chinese or Russian missions, do you, can you get the information to track them, or there you can't get the information, and so the answer would be no? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, spacetrack.org uh, offers orbital elements. They don't distribute orbital elements for our classified satellites, for U.S. satellites, but they have no compunction about distributing information on any Russian or Chinese satellites that they have information on, so you can get the orbital elements to any of those satellites and, and track them. And I've been, it's one of those things that's on my to-do list. I've been meaning to get some good footage of uh, the Chinese space station and combination of weather and timing just haven't lined up for me to, to do that yet. Um, fascinating. Um, what, um, so, so you've got the Falcon Heavy coming up. Um, can you uh, track out of... Um, uh, uh, Ariane space down, um, you know, below the equator, you can track anything. Then it doesn't matter where it's located, right? If it comes up over the horizon. Now, with the Ariane space launch, I don't think that it will come over the horizon during launch. Um, but any payload launched by a rocket anywhere in the world will generally pass over at some point. Um, and it's just a question of is it visible at night um, or is it not? And so, uh, with any any case like that, it's it's possible. Um, it helps to have uh, it helps to have orbital information. And I will say, ESA, to their discredit, they're not generally as good about distributing that information as NASA is. NASA is usually very very good 
about distributing orbital elements of their upcoming missions even before they launch. So I can know where I'm going to need to look in the sky to point the telescope to track, say, Perseverance rover or Mars Curiosity rover, anything like that. Um, for example, this uh, this ESA mission that was launched the other day on a Falcon 9 right. uh, was heading out to uh, Lagrange Point, and it should have been visible at night. However, I could not find any orbital information uh, on that mission, and so there was no way for me to easily be able to try to track it. I guess I could have hunted around for it and spent a few hours looking for it. Maybe I would have found it. Maybe I wouldn't have, but it, it was not enticing enough for me to try to spend my evening doing that. So that that information is provided by the the company doing the launch, not the not the launcher company. Like SpaceX doesn't provide it; they have to rely on ESA to provide it. That's correct. Yeah, SpaceX does not generally provide. Uh, the trajectory data on their customers prior to launch, usually. Um, I, I typically haven't seen that. They will provide a viewing website for, like, if they launch a Dragon, especially if it's a crewed mission, they'll show you where Dragon is at all times pretty much on their website. Right. But if it's something else, like like an ESA launch, they generally won't provide that information. ESA can, or it, it, sometimes they will, but they, they don't always. They're not as... Um, I, I just say I, I would say they're not as good about it as NASA. NASA is usually very, very good about that. Uh, ESA is hit or miss. Um, how did you get into this? Uh, what what gave you the idea or the interest to to track launches and spacecraft? I mean, I, I grew up here in Florida. In fact, I grew up over on the Space Coast. Um, I had a number of family members who, who worked out there. My grandfather worked on the Titan three C. Uh, my great uncle worked on uh, for um, uh, Northrop Grumman for a period of time. He worked on the lunar module, so I, it's kind of in my blood. I, I grew up, you know, watching these things in person. Saw most most shuttle missions in person. Um, saw Challenger, uh, the Challenger accident when I was a kid. But in, in all of this, like it, it just sort of uh, was my environment, and I, I became interested in trying to do it. It, it didn't even occur to me the thought that. You know, I could use a telescope to track these things in deep space until uh, one day when I was uh, probably in middle school, I, I came across the Sky and Telescope magazine, which had pictures of the Apollo, one of the Apollo missions. In fact, I think it was the Apollo 13 explosion that was caught by a telescope on the ground. And that's when it clicked, like, oh, we can see these things from the ground, even even deep space missions. Like, that's amazing. So, you know, it became kind of a, an idea forming in my brain at that point that, Maybe one day I could grow up and, and do something like that. And then as I got into amateur astronomy, got into uh, telescopes and uh, astrophotography, I started to realize there was a, a need for better software for, for tracking these things and started developing uh, started developing my own programs to do it. Uh, if I can ask, what is your day job? Uh, neuroscience. So not, not related to this field per se, but uh, um, still you know, um, requires a certain degree of rigor and uh, uh, involvement in science, of course. So do you track Musk company on neuroscience, neuro whatever it's called? Oh, oh, a Neuralink, yeah. Yeah, Neuralink. I, I, yeah I've definitely taken an interest uh, in all of that. It's not um, it's not really directly related to what I study, but it's it's definitely an interesting uh, development. I definitely keep an eye on, on, on their... Uh, on their findings and uh, not, uh, innovations. Didn't he get a, a permit to experimentally try it on a person? Or was it an I, animal or something? Yeah, they've done, of course they've done a number of animal experiments. Um, I think they're, they're headed for clinical trials in people if they haven't already started that. 
Um, I, I, yeah, I know they're, they're, that's their trajectories for sure. Um, listen, if, if you can send me an email with your contact information uh, so I can stay in touch. Is there anything more you, you'd like to tell us because we're coming up on the end of open lines? Uh, thank you. Well, again, thank you for, for having me on. I'll definitely uh, send you a message and, and keep in touch. Um, yeah, I guess the only thing is I'll just plug again my YouTube channel, Astronomy Live, on YouTube. And I okay. uh, hope people will, will tune in, especially as, as hopefully we get more Artemis missions underway. Um, well, hopefully they don't cut the funding. I mean, I, I'm not crazy about the Artemis program, but it's the only way to, to get back to the moon for now with people. So I support it. Yeah. And, I, God, there's so many things they can cut funding on rather than that. It's just un- unbelievable to me that, that they would choose to take away money from that rather than so much of the crap that they're doing. But uh, they're not talking to me, so. <laughs> <laughs> me either, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> you know, what can I say? Scott, this has been a, a real pleasure talking to you, and thank you uh, very much for your for your call today. And we'll stay in touch and, and talk some more. And if, if you have something coming up and uh, you want to talk and share it with the spatial audience, just get a hold of me and we'll certainly do it, okay? All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate your call. Uh, Listeners, we're at the 90-minute mark, so I'm going to start shutting the program down for the day. Uh, It's a full open lines program. If you do have something that you want to uh, call in or say, you need to to do it really, really quickly. And somebody did do it really, really quickly. Uh, Good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you for your call. This is Doug from Redlands, California. What's on your mind, Doug? Uh, well, I just want to let listeners know, uh, sort of give a report about uh, the Space Belt Network. We uh, displayed our full-scale mock-up of a inflatable moon-Mars base at uh, the IFCC, the National Space Society's annual conference. Um, and we also had a space fair along uh, with that, so I just wanted to describe that uh, for the uh, for the listeners. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, over the last about 18 months, uh, our space development network uh, in, in my local area, we uh, actually designed and constructed using just sheet plastic from, you know, like Lowe's or Home Depot and duct tape uh, to be able to create uh, the shapes. Uh, and we, we used my high school gymnasium, you know, the high school that I went to school at here in Southern California, um, and they let us use it over over quite a period of time. About once per week, we uh, would work on it. And so the, the our InstaBase concept, and, and the reason why we call it InstaBase is because inflatable habitats you can construct them on Earth with you know Kevlar, you know the very best materials, and test it all, make sure it's safe, uh, and then you just package it up and deliver it. Uh, we use the presumption of Starship uh, payload size. And so you would just uh, deploy it uh, to the surface, and robots would wheel it out to a pre-prepared surface area that had been flattened. Um, And then uh, you inflate against the vacuum so it wouldn't take too much air. Uh, You go ahead and inflate it, uh, and uh, instantly you just have this thing uh, sort of inflate and construct itself. That's why we call it the InstaBase. Um, And so what we did is we created this, this InstaBase mock-up, and of course we use fans uh, to inflate it. So it's only a it's only a mock-up. It's not something that's uh, ever going to be launched to the moon or Mars. 
it's just for illustration purposes. Um, but uh, we this thing has uh, ten different modules, and uh, when they're, all the modules are attached together, uh, it uh, the footprint fits within basically a high school gymnasium. So this is a very large uh, mock-up. It's full scale, and it has. Um, uh, ten different modules. Uh, one of them is a bed hab uh, with four different bedroom uh, modules attached together. From that comes a hallway going past uh, a two-module uh, bath hab. And then the hallway goes into the living hab, which uh, uh, conceptually has two floors, bottom floor before the kitchen, the upper floor before the living room. Uh, and then um, sort of attached... Uh, you know, Close in there uh, is a cross-shaped um, work cab with four different wings. So the long wing for uh, a machining area. Another wing is uh, for chemistry. Another was, is for bio and geology. And the fourth wing is for assembly of, of telerobots using both local parts, uh, sort of bulky metal parts, as well as uh, shipped uh, electronic parts and motors, fine you know, precision motors. Um, and then uh, uh, just to the, for the south of that is an um, uh, art tab specifically designed with a circular dome roof that would allow people to, using sort of sticky uh, socks, uh, they can dance and be able to use basically all surfaces or music or, or art shows, things of this nature, as uh, people on Earth are, are watching. Um, and then uh, the, the two largest... Um, Habitat modules would be two green halves, and we specifically sized those uh, according to the data from the um, studies from University of Arizona Tucson. Their prototype lunar greenhouse. We use uh, we use that data to construct the volume that would be necessary to provide ongoing nutrition for initial permanent crew of eight people. And then finally, the another large half would be a spin hab. That would be large enough to where um, the eight astronauts could be in, in within four chambers in a centrifuge sort of situation, a truss, you know, sort of low-mass truss, spinning around to allow them to get up to a full G at 11 RPMs if they wouldn't be able – they'd only be able to do sedentary activities that don't require the turning of their head. So that, that's what's getting around the Coriolis. Uh, so what we did is we um, – after – completing the construction of this, and we completed it about, um, um, about eight months ago, and uh, I did purchase a, a trailer, uh, and surprisingly, uh, all of this, including the uh, space fair displays, could all be fit within a trailer that could be pulled by a truck, um, and so uh, I actually drove it uh, first to Boca Chica, Texas. Uh, where we attempted to display it outdoors, and then when that event was done, that was the launch event uh, for Starship, uh, then he drove it up to Frisco, Texas, which is just by Dallas, and uh, and we stored it there at a National Space Society, a, a local member's um, garage, uh, until FDC uh, was, was held um, about, boy, when was it, about five weeks ago, I think it is? Right. Now, the cool thing... Uh, the cool thing about uh, IFDC is they had um, a conference center that they rented, and it had a very large um, uh, ballroom. And so we were able to display uh, our Instabase in a completely, you know, 
just cold environment where we didn't have to deal with, with the winds. Um, and because we had completed the construction of InstaBase uh, about six or eight months ago, um, we had, and there were sort of delays in, in, the, in the Starship launch, during that time, we did start constructing um, signs as well as uh, quite a large number of uh, sort of space uh, science fair uh, with the space orientation, so we call it space fair. A lot of different displays illustrating the, uh, the concepts of space development. And so what we did is at, uh, at ISDC, we, we filled up two-thirds of the room with the, with the inflatable modules, uh, and then we had tables with all these different signs very systematic sort of order. So if you start from the left and work to your right, you'll be able to see all the different aspects of space development. And when people entered the room, it was common, typical for them to go, wow, as you're looking at this very large uh, Insta-based display. And then they would systematically go through, and we did tours where we uh, went through and described all the different aspects of the uh, of space development. Um, <clears throat> so let me see if I can... Uh, give a web address for people, if you go to developspace.info slash displays, uh, it will show an image of the um, Instabase as well as all of the different space development displays and exhibits that we have in the slide as well. You're, you're cutting out, but are are you going to display this at the Mars Society Conference in Arizona? Um, I'm planning on reaching out. I haven't uh, offered it yet, but we would be prepared to uh, transport it from uh, from Frisco, Texas, to um, to Phoenix in order to do that. So, so, so it's, it all depends. It's still in Texas, then, right? You didn't bring it back to California. No, left it in in near Dallas, Texas. Yeah, probably wise. California would probably put a property tax on it. So um, you, you're better off in Texas. Um, well, the Mars Society Conference would be a suitable place for it if, if uh, Zubrin will let you do that or if they have an exhibit hall. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the university has no shortage of, of large exhibit halls, so gymnasiums are a good place to do it. Um, it all depends on the time of year and the availability. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I guess uh, it all depends on on the fee for to, to rent the facility as well. The big AIAA Ascend conference is around the same time as the Mars Society conference. It's at the huge, and I do mean huge, Las Vegas Convention Center, and uh, so there you have a different crowd because you have almost everybody's within the industry, including the, the Mars aspect and the company aspect of, of Mars and related topics, I think it would be really interesting for that crowd to see something, because I saw it, of course. I think it would be really interesting for that conference to have an opportunity to see something like that. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about AIAA. I, I feel like this is more of a space advocate uh, exhibit than a industry exhibit. But you know, it would be I mean, educational yeah. for them, Doug. Um, especially if you were there to to guide them for a few days, it, it would be something that this crowd would not see because they probably wouldn't go to an advocate conference. But um, so it would be uh, it would be educational on your part, and you'd be reaching probably a, an audience that is 90% new and would probably never be your audience in a normal way because they don't 
go to advocacy sites, uh, and they weren't at ISDC. At least I didn't see very many from that crowd that were at ISDC. So I, I know it'd be competing probably with the Mars Society, but it, it'd be a real switch to put it there and let the professional side and the industry side uh, grasp with it. Yeah. Something I, to think I, about. You know the dates on AIAA? No, but it's later in, in August. Hold on, I've, I've got my press pass credential. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, it's called ASCEND, A-S-C-E-N-D. So you could, okay. you could Google AIAA ASCEND. And you, uh, because it's in Las Vegas, and and you you'd probably get it right away. Well, I see that. Yeah, October twenty three to twenty five. Right, and the convention center. I was there for a send last year, so they had so much unused space in the rooms that they were having the conference. It it looked like there were two people there compared to the relevant space at the convention center. And like in the in the big rooms where you would walk through to get to other rooms, you could have put ten of your of your Mars habitats in there. You know, it was just wasted space. You know, it was a huge room, and you you walk down this little area over here to go into doorway one or doorway three, or you had to walk across the open space, which was a, like a football field, to go into doorway four on the other side of the room. That's just one, and then they. They had contiguous rooms that were locked because they weren't being used, and there might be two or three rooms, and then there's a room that's being used. So I, I don't know how they do their space or anything like it, but it seems to me they have the space that they're already paying for. You know, and maybe the convention center would even let you put it in public areas because they had so much public area space. It was it was unbelievable. Like when you walk in from the parking lot, the the when you walk in for, into the convention center, there's more space from when you walk in the parking lot than you had at the whole ISDC thing. Yeah. So uh, Las Vegas is a four and a half hour drive from Phoenix. Yeah. Right. I know. Yeah. I'm a well very well aware that I do it. So uh, uh, I don't know how long a drive it would be from Texas. It might be two days from Texas. I don't know. To Phoenix, so uh, the the uh, Phoenix one is first, and then uh, you know the Mars Society convention in Phoenix is first, and then uh, a four and a half hour drive, and then Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas to Phoenix is about six to eight hours, depending on how fast you drive. Well, Google Maps says four and a half hours, nonetheless, uh, and it's two weeks later is the Spin Conference, so. Can you can you can you take your truck over this unbelievably high and scary suspension bridge that they built in place of the road over Hoover Dam that connects you from Arizona to um, Nevada, or would you have to go the long way around? So you might want to look into that. I don't know. I mean, this got a this got a freeway going over that. That would be no problem. I, I've been up that bridge. You, you've so. been over that bridge, and it doesn't bother you. Not at all. Jesus. Yeah, they got a freeway cross. It bothers the hell out of me. I'm thinking the next time I go to Phoenix or Tucson, I'm going to go the long way around. That—that <laughs> uh, That is one hell of a, of a suspension bridge. 
It's freeway 11. That shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> All right. Just wanted to make sure your, your truck would go on that road. Yeah. I'm not concerned. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to be at Ascend if you're if you're coming up for it. Let me know because I'd love to love to see you again down there. And uh, I, I think it'd be I don't know what the reaction would be, but I I think it would be really educational for the people going to Ascend. If you want to reach out to people at AIAA that that like issue the the media pass and do some of the PR and stuff, uh, let me know and I'll introduce you to them and uh, see what they tell you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad I called it. All right. Somehow you're cutting off, so I'm going to go ahead and end it. I don't know why the phone's dying, but uh, let me know if you're interested, and, and I'll make the introductions to uh, to uh, Rebecca for you, and maybe that'll uh, that'll work out for you. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, listeners, that's going to be it for uh, our program for today. Um, for the week coming up, um, let's see. There's no show on Tuesday because of July 4th. Hotel Mars, we're doing Moxie updates with the uh, assistant PI of the Moxie pro- program, uh, former astronaut MIT professor Dr. Jeffrey Hoffman. And many of you that are sort of old-timers may know that Jeff is the guy who repaired with his spacewalk the Hubble spacecraft. He's been a guest on the show two or three times, but... That was early, early, early on in space show history, uh, and he's going to be our Hotel Mars guest. Uh, Jean-Francois Gaultier uh, is going to be with us and on Friday with his company in Canada, and they do satellites that monitor methane leaks and discharges and other gases for the climate change industry. Uh, and other industries. It's it's very interesting. It's not 100% gung-ho climate change, although most of you might think it is. Uh, and that will be really interesting about those kinds of satellites. And then our friend Stephanie Thomas from Princeton Satellite will be back with us on Sunday, July 9th, uh, giving us important fusion industry updates. So that's it for the future. All of the upcoming shows for the month of July are mentioned on the upcoming show menu website newsletter. Not the one that's on the right side of the homepage, but the website newsletter. And July is 100% booked right now. So, and, and we're booking August and September. So um, I want to thank everybody who called and those of you who sent us emails. And um, I want to wish everybody a happy July 4th and a great holiday weekend. If you like to play with fireworks as well as I do, as much as I do, then be careful. Uh, you want to come back on the show with all your fingers and toes. So um, here in Las Vegas, there's a fireworks stand on every single corner just about. There's no shortage of them. But these are mild, really scaled-down fireworks compared to back in the day, like I'm an old geezer talking, back in the day where you could buy cherry bombs, TNT bombs, and uh, M80s. Yeah, none of that stuff's available anymore. Buzz bombs that were really buzz bombs. Um, But they're nice, and if you like fireworks and you have kids, uh, can't go wrong. But they're on every corner here, and I I don't know the rules for where you are where you are, but if you play with them, 
be safe and uh, have a good time. And uh, stop for a serious moment. I, I really mean this. And, uh, you know, thank uh, the U.S. of A. For, for being here because we're an exceptional country despite all the problems we have right now and the, and the cultural changes we're going through. Um, and uh, the world would not be the same. And I, do, I personally do not think it would be as free and it would not be as secure uh, as, uh, as it is today without the United States. Uh, so lots of great people have come before us. We stand on their shoulders, and uh, we will continue to do that with lots of great people. So just give pause to say, uh, you know, happy anniversary to the Uncle Sam. Um, uh, he's meant a lot to people all over this world. That's why so many people want to come here legally or illegally. Um, so thank Thank whoever you thank for you and your families being here and for the United States being here for all these decades and, and centuries to help make this a better planet. And with that, everybody, I'm back with the pre-record for Hotel Mars on Wednesday and then back uh, with methane satellites on Friday. Goodbye from the space show, everybody who called today, everybody who emailed. One more time, happy 4th of July. Keep looking up. Great moon lookings this week uh, or this month. Uh, you can find lots and lots of articles about that. And uh, enjoy looking at the moon if you're in an area where you get to see a lot of different full moons. There are four of them this month back to back. Once again, keep looking up. Goodbye from the space show. Oh, I almost forgot. Our sponsors, Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestris, Astrox, Dr. Heim Benaroya, and the Space Foundation. Uh, it's too late for me to read all the, the messages uh, and the PR for them. It's my mistake. I apologize to our great sponsors, but I'm definitely shouting out to them. We would not be doing the space show without Northrop Grumman. AIAA, Helix, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox, Dr. Benaroya, and the Space Foundation. Uh, follow what they do, and uh, we thank them for being a sponsor. And if you want to be a sponsor, email me at drspaceatthespaceshow.com, and I'll provide you with all the information and the details. And one more final, keep looking up. Goodbye from the space show.